Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the uh, Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Aditi Gurkar. She's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Geriatric Medicine and also a principal investigator at the uh, University of Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about molecular mechanisms that drive aging in response to uh, you know DNA damage. So, Aditi, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell me about uh, why you do you study um, aging and uh, and this mechanism. I mean, if you could just recap your research in your own words briefly. Sure. Um, I actually this was this has been a personal journey for me. Really, um, I grew up in India and. My grandparents were a big part of my life. Um, so I was really lucky to have both, them, both of them and see them while I was growing up. And my grandfather, even as a kid, I thought he was invincible. I mean, he was the superhero for me um, who never got sick. Um, and at the age of 83, he was healthy. Um, he could walk up uh, flights of stairs, really sharp, um, didn't ever get sick. And on the other end of the spectrum was my grandmother. I mean, even in her 70s, you could see that she was heading towards a downward spiral. Um, She was frail, had cognitive decline. Um, The last three or four years of her life, basically, um, she was immobile, bedridden, um, and completely dependent on her family. So the big question that stuck with me while I was growing up was, why do two people age so differently. Um, And this was the major drive for all my research, is to understand molecularly what happens um, that two people who are the same age, basically both of them lived to be 83, but one was healthy and one had all these comorbidities and was sick for at least a good 15, 20 years of her life. Um, And that's what motivated me to work on this. It's interesting that you experiences firsthand with your grandparents with your uh, grandfather when at what point did he suddenly did he suddenly get sick before he passed or he just yes yeah what happened with him actually it was just it was very interesting i think i was like 10 or 11 and um my grandfather got diagnosed with cancer even then he was extremely healthy didn't really have um symptoms as such he just had some problems in in swallowing while eating you know, so we go to the doctor, he gets diagnosed. And then within three or four months, really, there was nothing the doctors could do for him. Um, and so he passed away really quickly, like three, four months after the initial diagnosis. Um, but even as a child, it's, it's funny, you know, my thought process was if anybody gave me the choice of how I could live um, and how I get to die, I would always pick how my grandfather lived, you know, enjoying every moment and being productive um, and contributing to society until the very last minute of my life. Um, yeah, exactly. Me too. That would be good. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Um, so that's really been the motivation for understanding the molecular mechanisms that drive aging. Um, and in particular, my interest has been how does DNA damage um, drive aging? Um, if you uh, ask, sorry, go ahead. Oh, so when you say uh, DNA damage, you know, we'll get into the details what that means, but please go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say, um, you know, you may ask why particularly DNA damage? Um, and for me, again, DNA is such a fundamental macromolecule, right? Um, in the most simplistic form, when you think about it, you're born with DNA and you die with the same DNA, basically, in the most simple way. Um, now, when you think about other macromolecules like proteins, proteins are made, they have a life um, period, and then they basically get degraded. And then when you need it, you make more protein, at least in most cases. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. But with DNA, you have to maintain your DNA for your entire lifespan. Um, and what is even more interesting is it has been estimated that we um, basically have one particular human cell will undergo about 70,000 DNA lesions or DNA damage um, on any particular day. So it becomes really important um, of how we react to this particular DNA damage. Um, so that's, again, what has driven me to look at this in, in my lab. What, what happens during cell division uh, to your DNA specifically is, uh, yes. you know, you go over that process, please. Yeah, so um, during cell division, um, DNA, as you know, is double-stranded. Um, it opens up um, and it gets replicated. Um, and your two daughter cells will then get um, replicated DNA. So you want to make sure that, again, you do not have mutations or DNA damage in your cell, because if that happens, then you're replicating, um, in, in, again, simple terms, bad DNA or bad mutations into your daughter cells. Um, sometimes also, there, there are many kinds of DNA damage. Um, so for example, there could be a, a big lesion. For example, when you walk out in the sun, um, DNA gets hit by UV radiation. And what that does is causes these big adducts to form on your DNA. So when the cell is replicating, um, and if your polymerase hits one of these bulky lesions, it cannot replicate the DNA properly. So what ends up happening is either it, it does not replicate the DNA properly and your cell can die, or it just adds in any sort of, um, um, any sort of nucleotide instead of the correct nucleotide that needs to be added in. And this is how you pass on mutations into the daughter cell then. Um, so it's extremely important during replication. If I, if I label... Um you know, a piece of DNA, each strand, if I label one strand bottom, one strand top, mm -hmm. and I'm in a cell and the cell divides, so bottom and top zip open, and then a new top is constructed to match the bottom and a new bottom correct. is constructed to match the top? Correct. Absolutely correct. And, and so in, in the, scientific terms, we call it the leading and the lagging strand. Um, and that's okay, exactly so, what happens. So is there any preservation of leading or lagging strand amongst multiple generations of division or... Um, do, are, there, are they always flip-flopping? And so a given strand will never survive more than like one cell division, I would say. That's, that's actually a great question. Um, I don't know if people have looked at it in as much detail. Um, it does look like both the leading and the lagging strands 
are replicated quite well. Now, most of the studies you have to pay, um, you know, you have to be careful because a lot of these studies that we do are in vitro, in, in cell culture dishes. Um, so again, you're giving, um, you're giving the best opportunity for both the leading and the lagging strand to replicate. And it doesn't look like one replicates more than the other. Um, looks like both have a 50% um, chance. Uh, but in vivo, that's a good question. Um, if the leading or the lagging strand in a, in a competitive manner, which would survive? And I, I don't think um, anybody's looked at it in that detail yet. Yeah, because if a cell divides, I, I asked, I figured, out, I figured the, uh, you know, the, the main cell, not the daughter cells, but the main cell would then die at some point. So I wonder if the leading and the lagging strands are preserved over many, many, many generations. I wonder if you could like fluorescently tag one of them or both and do some cell division in a fast dividing cell type and see what happens to them. Oh yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and I think um, that's something we can do, especially now with newer techniques and newer microscopy techniques too. That would be something to um, really look at. So when, when you look at um, DNA damage, are you using just like an accessible cell type, like blood cells or, uh, well, they don't divide, but, um, you know, like skin cells? Because um, I would think in the body, you know, we have 200 plus cell types. Some right. divide very slowly, some fast. So I wonder what the yeah. profile looks like over time of someone's DNA damage in slow versus fast dividing cells. That's an excellent, excellent question. And that's basically what my lab's trying to do. Um, so what we have seen in the past, um, few years is it's not the DNA damage per se that drives aging. Rather, it is how the cell responds to DNA damage. And when we think about this, we want to think of it in an um, entire organism. So we basically use um, um, one of the model organisms in my lab is C. elegans or the worm. Um, and we have DNA damage in this worm in, in basically every cell. Um, and we try to figure out how does um, the cell respond to that damage? And if we can intervene at any point, um, can we allow the organism to live longer, for example? So those are the kinds of questions we are looking at. Another thing that's really interesting and, and based on your question is, um, you're absolutely right. What we don't know is um, how do, there's a lot known again in, in cancer and DNA damage. We know that DNA damage leads to mutations um, and this is the cause for several cancers. But what's not known is how does DNA damage in post-mitotic cells, so in cells that um, cannot um, undergo replication, um, in those cells, um, if there is DNA damage, how does that tissue react to that DNA damage? And that's something my lab is really interested in. Um, so in that case, we use cardiomyocytes or, or neurons, which basically are post-mitotic. And we introduce DNA damage and try to figure out how the cell responds to that damage. Well, you introduce damage. So in a given tissue, on a normal basis, what will the, the, um, the profile of the cells look like in terms of damage? I mean, I've, I would think they would not all be damaged in the same way across Correct. the tissue. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent question too. And um, hopefully with, with some of the um, newer techniques like, um, you know, single cell sort of analysis, we can really now tease out if one particular cell has 
um, damage? What are the responses to that damage? And what is the cellular fate of that particular cell? Uh, would it, would it you know, stop replication, for example, and just give the cell enough time to repair that damage? Or if, that, if the cell decides it has too much damage and wants to undergo apoptosis, um, so again, those are the kinds of things that we are mainly interested in, in now. Um, initially, people always looked at DNA damage as, as a cumulative thing and, and basically would say, oh, this whole you know, plate of cells, for example, um, has DNA damage. Um, what would be the response? Would they all die? But we now know that each cell has, has different way of responding to that damage. Um, and we are trying to figure out, um, again, how every cell would respond to the damage and what would help it survive. Uh, are you, when you look at natural damaged cells, has anyone quantified the damage? I mean, if, if you think of it as a continuum from what we call healthy to like, you know, ready to apoptose and blow itself up, you know, I guess there's a continuum there, but maybe there's a nameable discrete types and levels of damage. Is yeah. there a lexicon of that? Yeah, that's, that's again, you know, a very um, important question that still needs to be addressed. Uh, one of the issues or one of the challenges really um, trying to do this is um, when I say that a cell can get about 70,000 DNA lesions in a day, um, they're all different sorts of damage. Um, they could be bulky lesions, they could be mutations, they could be single strand breaks, they could be DNA that breaks into two pieces, like double strand breaks. Um, and it has been extremely challenging to quantify all of these um, in some sensible way. Um, of course, there are mass spec techniques, um, some that our collaborators use, for example, where we can look at certain kinds of damage. Um, and, and the one particular damage we are interested in is called cyclopurine adducts. And these adducts form on DNA, again, due to um, metabolism and oxidative stress. Um, so we are trying to see um, how much cyclopurine adducts um, are observed with age. Um, and clearly, in, in aging model organisms, it does look like there is a continuum. They seem to accumulate these cyclopurine adducts as they age. But, you know, again, what's the threshold or how much damage can a cell um, really survive through? Um, that's really unknown at, at this point. Um, we do know that double-strand break seems to be the most um, bad or the most villainous sort of um, DNA damage. So when you have double strand breaks that cannot be repaired, the cell does seem to undergo either cellular senescence um, or apoptosis very quickly. Uh, but all the other kinds of damage, people have not been able to measure it quantitatively um, to say, again, what kind of damage and how much um, can a cell respond to or survive with. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. When does the error correction happen? And does the error correction either catch a problem right in the moment or that's it, the problem sticks? Or can uh, in later cell divisions or at later times, is the cell always repairing you know, existing damage? Maybe some stays there for a week or so until the cell can finally repair it. I don't know. Right, right. 
Um, so again, the, the different types of damage are, are um, corrected at different um, times in the cell. For example, um, if there is a mutation um, that's being passed on to daughter cells, those are, are generally um, much tougher to correct because already um, what you're replicating has already been mutated. So there is no correct copy anymore. Um, so those kinds of damage are definitely um, tough um, to repair. But then there are other sorts, for example, um, the bulky lesions that I, I talked about. Uh, most of them are corrected during um, uh, replication. Uh, but there are other types of DNA repair processes that's, that work um, even when cells are not proliferating anymore. For example, homologous recombination, non-homologous end joining. These are kind of DNA repair processes that can happen in a cell even if they are not replicated. So most of the post-mitotic cells, for example, would undergo NHEG, which is non-homologous end joining, to correct um, the DNA damage that they have accumulated. Um, now, again, how long can the cell survive with that particular damage? Um, that's a great question. What our results show, again, is not that um, it is the damage itself. Even, even the smallest damage leads to the cell responding to the damage. What I mean by that is um, the cell tries to correct the damage. And DNA repair in itself is a very metabolically active process. Um, for DNA repair, what you need to do is to open the chromatin, to locate the damage, and then to engage enzymes that would correct this damage. Uh, and all of these processes, including chromatin opening and chromatin remodeling, chromatin closing, all of this requires uh, a lot of metabolites, um, not just ATP. Of course, ATP is key or energy is key. But in addition to energy and ATP, you also require other metabolites like um, acetyl-CoA, for example, um, alpha-ketoglutarate, for example. So these are all metabolites that are absolutely required for DNA repair to take place. Um, and this is, again, well, a very new thing in the field. Go ahead. Yeah. So if there's damage that goes on for a period of time, how does the cell know how to fix it and what fix looks like? Where is that internal sense of what's right and what's not right um so the internal sense comes from what it's replicating um through so if the leading strand has a bulky lesion it knows the dna polymerase that's trying to replicate the dna gets stuck at this bulky lesion because it does not have um uh, enough space in its enzymatic pocket to hold such a bulky lesion so it drops off the dna um, and it cannot replicate any longer. And at this point, the cell has to figure out how it's going to correct that lesion. Um, and it will bring in, you know, repair enzymes to take out that lesion. And in the best case scenario, um, it will lead to um, reading of the, the, the nucleotides on the sides. And in the best case scenario, substitute with the exact um, nucleotide, which will not lead to mutations anymore. How do you think the sensing is done? You know, when DNA is replicating or when mm -hmm. it has errors, what kind of molecules are doing the sensing and saying, okay, 
let's bring in repair enzymes. Let's do this. Let's do that. Something's not working right. Yeah, that's 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 an amazing um, question. And um, basically, when um, DNA is replicating, it's, it's a single strand that's getting replicated. And when the polymerase falls off, um, there are proteins that coat the single strand DNA called replication protein A or RPA. Um, and when they realize that the DNA polymerase is no longer there, they start recruiting other um, enzymes or proteins. For example, uh, one of the main sensor of DNA damage is, is this protein called ATM. And ATM gets pulled on to double strand breaks. Um, at the same time, uh, there are on a double strand break, for example, there are other proteins like H2AX or histone, modified histone, uh, which gets, which basically coats the double strand um, um, DNA. Um, and this is the sensor for the double strand break, which will then bring in other enzymes um, to correct um, the DNA, DNA damage. Um, so H2AX, for example, then recruits ATM which is a kinase. And what does a kinase do is it phosphorylates a number of proteins and activates a number of um, DNA repair enzymes that are required um, at the moment. Um, so once ATM gets recruited to a double strand break, um, other, other kinds of proteins or DNA repair proteins get recruited there. And in, in different cases and in different DNA damage um, or DNA lesions, different sorts of DNA repair proteins get recruited. Um, I'm just giving you an example of double strand breaks, but of course, in single strand breaks also, um, like I mentioned, RPA then pulls in another kinase called ATR. Um, and this ATR then recruits uh, P53 and, and other DNA repair proteins to correct the damage. Have you tried to dope, um, you know, put, put a bunch of cells either in C. elegans or in a dish, you know, in a high ATM or ATR environment and try to encourage repair once they've been damaged? Yeah, yeah. so that, that's an excellent question. And um, what we have noticed is you would think repairing your um, DNA all the time would be great. However, when you have activation of these enzymes or, or proteins, um, ATM, ATR, P53 for an extended period of time, what ends up happening is it tells the, is it tells the cell, I am going through constant stress. So help me, help me, help me. And what ends up happening is this constitutive activation of such proteins leads to um, aging in, an, in a much more quicker manner. Um, so it's, it's a delicate process where you need ATM, ATR, P53, things like this to take care of your DNA and to stabilize your DNA. But at the same time, overactivation leads to the cell thinking that it's in constant stress. Um, and that basically is what we think drives aging. So this is what I was saying is it's not the DNA damage per se, but rather how the cell responds to it. If it does this chronic activation of ATM or ATR or P53, um, it then basically drives the cell into um, cellular senescence, for example. Um, and that is one of the hallmarks of aging. Yeah, that makes sense. On the, um, on the DNA itself, are there preferential areas that are prone to errors in general or certain errors? Like 
if you have a very heavily methylated area that's not very active you know, with low expression or yeah. areas that are kind of tucked away, I mean, do they tend to experience damage? Like, you know, what have you observed? Yeah, that's that's a, a very active field of investigation, especially with the, again, with the newer microscopy techniques um, and the advancements in the field. That's one of the questions that people have been trying to address is uh, where um, does DNA damage occur in the genome? Um, we, in particular, have not yet um, um, looked at this in, in a lot of detail uh, because we were more interested in, you know, how does the cell respond to the damage rather than the damage in itself? Um, what we have noticed is if we can intervene and modulate how the cell responds to damage, um, and we think one of the key responses is metabolism. And if we can reprogram metabolism to the DNA damage, uh, we end up actually um, making some of our model organisms live longer. And so that's the, that's the thing that we have been particularly interested in, um, is how can we intervene, not in the DNA repair process itself, but in understanding how the cell would respond to such damage. Um, and then change that to see if we can um, extend lifespan and health span um, of model organisms. Hmm, okay. So, uh, any other interesting things that you've noticed in your in your studies? Um, yeah. Um, so, I think like the lab, my lab's been really looking at three specific um, big questions. One is um, how does DNA uh, damage reprogram metabolism and can we intervene at some point um, and delay aging? Um, the second question, like I mentioned before, is um, how do post mitotic cells respond to DNA damage? Um, and what, what does that response look like? And the third thing that the lab's really interested in is understanding a unique molecular fingerprint uh, for biological age based on cellular senescence markers and, um, you know, the, meta met the metabolites and the metabolome. Um, so those are the three things that we have been doing. Um, and, and, and the last part to me, again, has been um, to bring it back to why I started working on aging. Uh, you know, when I, when I saw that my two grandparents aged so differently, even if they basically died at the exact same age, um, the question that I've been trying to figure out is how was their biological age different from their chronological age? So chronologically, both of them were 83, but biologically, of course, one was healthy and looked like 83, whereas the other in the 70s looked like a 90-year-old. Um, and so I've been really interested in understanding the, the molecular fingerprint um, that we could use to distinguish between a healthy ager um, and people who age rapidly or in an accelerated manner. Um, and the studies, again, stem from our uh, work on metabolism um, and cellular senescence. And what we have been doing in the past um, year and a half or so um, is, is doing um, metabolomics and um, senescence-associated proteins um, in uh, people, in humans, um, and we just finished a, a small study where we looked at 200 people, 100 of them absolutely healthy, and 100 of them um, seem to age rapidly. 
they're all about the age of 65. And what we noticed was people who age healthy um, seem to have a very different metabolic response compared to people who age rapidly. Um, in addition, what do you, they also... What do, you mean a, what do you mean a different metabolic response? What do you mean? So um, at least our, our initial study, it looks like um, people who are healthy seem to use their mitochondria, which you know is the battery pack of the cell, and it, it, uh, lead, it basically produces energy for us, right? Um, and it looks like healthy ages um, use their mitochondria in, in a greater capacity, whereas rapid ages somehow don't or cannot use their mitochondria effectively. And so instead of using their mitochondria, they, they start um, another process of, of um, oxidation of fatty acids, basically, um, to produce energy. And we think that that is what leads to this um, delineation between healthy ages and rapid ages. Um, of course, we have to validate this study in a bigger population, hopefully um, in the next few years. Uh, but this has been really eye-opening for us, um, again, starting from an unbiased manner and doing um, AI and machine learning. Basically, we figured out that there is this different metabolic response in healthy ages versus early or rapid ages. Well, uh, and also, too, what about the microbiome of the, uh, of the two groups? You know, as a cell gets damaged, its interaction with its, its local microbes uh, would yeah. change. You know, the yeah. trading of resources would change, and therefore I would think their microbiome would change around the damaged cells and be different from around healthy ones. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's another great question. And I'm, I'm hoping what we can do from, you know, building on our current studies is, again, including um, some of these microbiome studies um, and basically trying to integrate um, microbiome, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and proteomics to figure out what is the unique fingerprint that could help us understand what your biological age is. So when you go to the doctor, you know, for your annual checkup, um, they take a blood sample. And if they can run a panel of these five things, this is the, this is the particular bacteria that's associated with rapid aging, for example. Um, this is, uh, we have some metabolites that seem to be, um, again, um, associated with rapid aging. So if we can if we can take these panel of metabolites and the microbiome um, and and the proteins, if we can run these ten things and tell you what your biological age is in your forties, are you are you young and are you um, forty, really forty, or you know you basically look like a fifty year old? Um, and if so, can we intervene? Can we tell you what sort of a diet to do, for example, um, so that you can be healthy? Um, so those are the kind of questions that we want to um, address um, in the next couple of years. Okay. Well, very good. Um, any breakthroughs you feel like you're nearing in the short term, the next year or two? Or? Yeah. Um, again, I, I think we are at the cusp of something, with, especially with this, um, the metabolome and the senescence associated secretome studies. Um, this, this we think no one's um, done yet. And then there have been studies on metabolomics with aging 
and even with senescence and aging. Um, but we are trying to combine the two and, and figure out um, who, who ages quickly um, and why. Um, and we are really integrating um, these two omic sort of studies to do this. Um, and we think we have um, found uh, a couple of, um, or a panel of metabolites that can really distinguish um, between healthy ages and rapid ages. Um, hopefully we, we publish that you know, soon in the next um, few months or even a year. And, and of course there are limitations to the study. We need to do um, a validation group. We need to do a larger group um, to look at and, and make sure that our results can be reproduced um, in Italy, same as it would be in Pittsburgh, uh, because some of these metabolites might be, again, very specific to the region or maybe very specific to ethnicity, um, although we have accounted for, for those things and don't think um, that these things affect the particular metabolites or the panel of metabolites that we have come up with. Uh, but that, to me, is one of the most interesting things that that um, we'll be working on in the next um, year or two and trying to build this even more. Um, and then we are hoping we could also, next thing we could do here is also figure out what is the DNA repair capacity of people who age healthy versus who age um, rapidly. Um, and how do they respond to this damage? Um, uh, and hopefully we can integrate these sorts of studies um, in the future to come up with uh, mechanistically what is happening to drive um, accelerated or rapid aging. Okay, well, very good. Aditi, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, at healthspan underscore AUG. Um, and if you give me a shout out at Twitter, anytime I will respond to any questions people have. Um, and also I have a website called agresearchlab.com. Um, and most often it's updated and, you know, my latest publications are there. Um, and also the things that we are doing um, currently are quite updated on the website. Um, so anybody can, and can find me on these two places for sure. Very good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.